Well, what a wonderful and meaningful morning we've already had, haven't we? Uh, Being able to sing, yeah, being able to sing, being able to watch someone get baptized and to celebrate with them. Uh, We've already had a chance to laugh. And as I was thinking as Torin was leaving, I'll apparently have to help Pastor Craig because it won't be Torin. I think he just got fired. (laughs) Uh, But what a a great morning to have in the midst of an absolutely stunning weekend. I, I hope for many of you, you just have felt a sense of soaring hope in you that even in the midst of this beautiful weather that uh, things are changing, a new season is upon us, and we're excited for that. Well, I'm thrilled that we get to spend some time right now digging into the text together, being able to look at a series of stories this morning. And so what I'd like to do is begin with you in Numbers chapter 13. So I'd like to invite you there. And uh, our ushers are coming down the aisles right now. If you need a copy of scripture, throw up your hand. I would really highly recommend that you get a copy of scripture this morning because we're going to be reading a number of verses. And uh, if you've got your phone or if you've got a tablet, if you've got a Bible or if you need a Bible, throw your hand up and uh, we'll go from there. And here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to walk us through for our teaching time three different stories. You'll quickly find out that they're all linked together, but they are three distinct stories. And I want to key in on a character that shows up in all three. And as we've kind of navigated these three stories, we'll ask some questions about, okay, so what does this mean for us today? So that's gonna be how we're gonna navigate through this this morning. And uh, what I wanna do is, as we go into Numbers chapter 13, let me just give you a quick background on where the storyline has been bringing us to Numbers chapter 13, because some of you are like, I didn't even know there was a book by the name of Numbers, all right? So let me help you understand where we're at. We're about two years after Israel has been rescued from their slavery in Egypt. They made their way out of Egypt, they went through the Sea of Reeds, and they made their way to Mount Sinai, and they spent significant time here at Mount Sinai. They not only received Torah, God's words, God's instructions for life, they also constructed the tabernacle. They were at Sinai for some time. They have left Sinai and they've made their way now all the way up, going a couple of different places, to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is where our story picks up today. And Kadesh Barnea is an oasis in the desert, known as the Desert of Paran, and it was intended to be a staging ground for the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan in order to now get into the promised land. And this is what Kadesh Barnea looks like. So again, an oasis in the middle of the desert, a place for the Israelites to be able to have water, to be able to hang out for a while. And then this event occurs here in Numbers chapter 13. So again, if you just got a Bible, we are on page. 146, and it goes like this. The Lord said to Moses, Moses is the one who's leading the entire Israelite group now uh, and has been since leaving Egypt. Verse two, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. So there are 12 tribes. So there are 12 people that will be exploring the land. Notice with me verse six. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Now, Caleb is going to be our character today 
that we are going to trace through three different stories. Caleb is not a very well-known character unless you've been around the Bible for some time. But for most people, Caleb isn't someone that we know much about. And actually, prior to this moment here in Numbers 13, we haven't met the character of Caleb before. But here we find out he's a leader, and he's a leader from the tribe of Judah. And then also notice with me verse 8. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun. Hosea's name will get changed to Joshua. So Joshua is a character, if you've been around the Bible, you're like, oh yeah, I know the name Joshua. And we're introduced to Joshua actually back in the Exodus story when he leads the military of the Israelites against the Amalekites who attacked the Israelites after leaving Egypt. So here are two key folks, two people that are significant to the story. And then skip over with me to verse 21 of Numbers 13. And this is what it says. So they, talking about the 12, went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehov toward Libo Hamat. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, hold on to Hebron, we'll come back to that in a bit, where Achinam, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Anak, we're going to talk about also in just a little bit. And then verse 15, or excuse me, 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So this was a 40-day reconnaissance mission. They were spying out on the land. Where are their strengths? Where are their weaknesses? How can we get into the land? And it continues, verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. And from the earlier passage, they're talking about at Hebron where these descendants of Anak live. Then it says this, uh, verse 29, the Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, our central character this morning, silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Whoa. So they go on this 40-day reconnaissance mission. They come back. What we're going to find out is two of the 10 say we can do it. It's only later on that we find out that Joshua is with Caleb in this. But it's interesting to me that the text puts Caleb in the spotlight and Caleb says, we can do this. The other 10 in the group go, can't do it. There is no way we can do it. We saw the descendants of Anak. They were at Hebron. These people 
are massive. And they say, it's too imposing, it's too intimidating, we can't do it. And they said, uh, we're like grasshoppers to them. So the, 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 the big issue here is we're talking about giants, really big people. Well, how big are we talking here? Well, it's interesting because there was a text found in Egypt in an archaeological excavation from the 13th century BC. That's the exact same time period that we're talking about with the story today. And in that document, it talks about a group of people in the land of Canaan who are between seven and nine feet tall. Like all of them fall between seven and nine feet tall. Now, like some of you were probably like me when you first hear that, oh, come on, seriously. Yes, we have a few Shaquille O'Neal's in our world, right? We've got some Yao Ming's, we've got some big people, but literally a whole tribe that are between seven and nine feet tall, come on. Well, in an archeological excavation, midway between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, just east of the banks of the Jordan River in Jordan today, there was excavated in a cemetery from this time period, two women who were seven feet tall. Those are some tall ladies right there. Now, just to help us get a perspective of this, Justin, do you have that for me by any chance? What side are you coming out? This is like a guessing game. Oh, perfect. Hey, thank you very much. Perfect. Okay, so here's gonna help us this morning, all right? I had this idea last week. Sometimes ideas come a little bit late in the game, but that's okay. And uh, I was like, okay, I'm gonna call up this, peop- this group that does cardboard cutouts. I'm gonna send them an image and I'm gonna say, I need this guy to be like, eight, nine feet tall. And they said, we can do it. And they called me back and said, we can't do it. Well, we can do it. It's just gonna cost you like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And I was like, well, the illustration's important. It's not that important. So they sent it to me a lot smaller than I was expecting. So uh, this dude on the ground is about six, five, six, six, but up here, he's now about nine feet tall. Okay, so what I need you to imagine with me is that this is one of those warriors. And imagine he goes all the way to the ground. This guy is about, actually, he's about eight and a half feet tall. Now, I'm five foot nine. All right, I'm five nine. Now, now what we know from excavations of human remains of the Israelites from this time period is that the average male was five, five, 125 pounds. Friends, I'm 5'9". I would have been a beast in that day, all right? So you're getting a good perspective shot here. And the warriors are up to nine feet tall. And the 5'5 dudes go, we're like grasshoppers to them. Which talks about the discrepancy of size, yes, but it's also a bit humorous because the grasshopper was the smallest edible creature an Israelite was allowed to consume. Now, some of you are like, eating grasshoppers, that sounds awful. Yes, it does sound awful. When you're really hungry, you'll eat anything, okay? So in a way, it's kind of humorous because it's almost like they say to the rest of the Israelite community, it's like, these guys are so big and we're so small. It's not like they'll eat us for breakfast, they'll eat us for a snack. I mean, this is how small we are. We are grasshoppers in their eyes. And they spread this report. 
And what happens is in the midst of this, Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes. They're mourning for the response of the community because Caleb says, we can do this. We can take these guys out. Yes, they're big, but we can take them out because God has said, this is the land that he's putting us in. God has called us to that. We can do it. The other 10 send a report around the community. The community rose up in a revolt against Moses and Aaron. Aaron is Moses' older brother, also part of the leadership team. God gets really upset. Joshua and Caleb, they tear their clothes and Moses jumps into the midst of this. He intercedes and he says to God, God, you have to forgive this community. Just forgive them for what they are doing right now. And then this is what we find in the next chapter, Numbers 14, what God says after Moses has pled with him. Verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as, uh, yes, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. So God says, listen, everybody who saw my signs in Egypt, none of them are gonna get into the land. But Caleb will. And only later will God say Joshua will. But again, the text is focusing on Caleb. And what I find uh, riveting about what God does here is in, in, in talking about Caleb, this is what he says of Caleb. He says, my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. Can God say that about you? What an amazing thing. I, I hope, I wish, I desire, I long for God being able to say that about me. I'm willing to bet you would desire that as well. And God goes because of his heart. He's got a different spirit about him. He follows me wholeheartedly. And God goes, he will get in to the land. One of the things that we talk about often here at Central in teachings is the significance of a name. Talk about how names were never given haphazardly in the ancient world. There was an identity connected, connected to that name. There was a destiny that the parents hoped their kids would live into. Do you know what Caleb means in Hebrew? It means dog. <laughs> a dog. Like what? I wasn't expecting that one. Why would a parent name their child dog? Well, a dog and this word Kalev, which is Caleb in Hebrew, was used in ancient literature of someone who submitted wholeheartedly to their master. It was someone who took the focus off of themselves and says, I have so much trust, I have so much faith in you that I will submit to you. That was how this word Kalev, dog, was used, of a dog that submits to its master. Uh, you can go, okay, I, I get the sense now of Caleb's living into his name when God says, you follow me wholeheartedly. It also helps us understand why his parents didn't name him Hatul, which means cat, 
because cats are anything like this or anything but this. In fact, the best distinction I've ever heard between a dog and a cat goes something like this. A dog looks to its master and says, you give me food, you give me drink, you give me shelter, you must be God. A cat says, you give me food, you give me drink, you give me shelter, I must be God. I mean, a dog is always looking to submit. What can I do? How can I bring joy and pleasure and happiness to my master? And Caleb is going to get that chance later on in the story. But for our time in Numbers 13 and 14, that's story one. Story two, we're gonna go now to Joshua chapter 14. Just a couple books to the right. And now we need to fast forward. So let's go back to the story that we were just at. God says, nobody, nobody who disobeyed me in this way is now gonna get into the promised land. You fast forward 38 years because Israel had only spent two years in the desert at that time, maybe two and a half, depending upon how you do your reckoning. And as a result of this spies incident, the Israelites will spend 38 more years in the desert, bringing that to 40 years. So when you hear about the Israelites are in the desert for 40 years, they weren't supposed to be in the desert for 40 years. They were supposed to be in the desert for two years. But because of that instance where the 10 out of the 12 said, we can't do it. And the rest of the community said, yeah, we can't do it. That's why the Israelites then had to spend another additional 38 years and spent 40 years in the desert. The Israelites then cross over into the land, and now the event that we're looking at is seven years later. They've gone through the conquest. They're at the end of the conquest, but there's a very significant part of the region that hasn't been conquered yet. So notice with me in Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, because Moses is now dead. Joshua's been leading the crew. And Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea about you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God, and here's our word again, wholeheartedly. Verse nine, so on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. There's that word again. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. And then get this. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Tell me Caleb doesn't have some gumption to him. I'm 85 years old. I was just as strong as I was when Moses sent me out 45 years ago. I am ready to go. Give me the hill country. Give me the Anakites. Give me the giants. Let's go. Let's do this. And then Joshua's response, verse 14, then Joshua blessed Caleb. Good move, Joshua. Bless Caleb, son of Jephunneh gave him Hebron as his inheritance. 
So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, and there's our word again, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriat Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. So the Anakites, these are the giants. The greatest among them was a guy by the name of Arba. Hebron, we'll talk about the city in just a moment, was originally called Kiryat Arba. Kiryat means city of. City of Arba, the city is named after this massive giant of legendary status and reality. And then turn one chapter to the right, chapter 15, verse 13. It picks up the story and it says this, in accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah, Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Telmi, the sons of Anak. These are the leaders of the three tribes of the Anakites, of the giants. And in Joshua, here we find out that Caleb took out Hebron. So, One of the things we have to understand is we're dealing with a bunch of giants. We're dealing with massive, imposing, intimidating people that Caleb will take out. But we're not only talking about Caleb going after the biggest people, he's going after the biggest people in the highest part of the land. Let me show you this on a map. Hebron sits about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And as far as Hebron is concerned, Hebron was one of the most significant cities in the entire land of Israel. It was in fact so significant that this was the capital of David's uh, ruling before they took Jerusalem after seven years of his reign. David's first capital was at Hebron. Hebron sits at the highest plateau in all of Israel. The only place that you can go in Israel to sit at a higher elevation is at the very northern end of this map, just north of the Sea of Galilee, at a place called Mount Hermon. Outside of the mountain of Mount Hermon, in the furthest northern part, the highest part anywhere is here at Hebron. And just to give you a sense of how high Hebron sits up in the midst of the rest of the country, let me just show you this square right here. Right here, let's say we were able to plop this thing up and then turn it just a little bit, like cut the earth in half and be able to look at the elevation. Here's what you would see. So on the left here is the Mediterranean Sea, sea level, right? Zero feet. Then you have on the right side, the Dead Sea, which sits 1,360 feet below sea level. By the way, the lowest place on earth. And then sitting right up here at the mountain range, this is where Hebron sits more than 3,100 feet. And they have the highest ground. They've got the most fortified cities. And oh yeah, all their warriors are between seven and nine feet tall. And the Israelites are all five, five. (laughs) And Caleb says, I want it. I want it. Give that to me. I'll take it. Which he's 85 years old, right? I mean, the question when you're that old, I would imagine is, hey, Caleb, dude, 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 hey, hey, what's your retirement plan? Oh, taking mountain slaying giants. And then maybe I'll play a little golf after that. I mean, this guy is up for anything. And he takes out Hebron and he takes up the giants and he establishes his 
inheritance. Story two. Story three, we don't even need to visit in the text because you know it, because it's a story that's been the foundation for everything we're doing with a stronger challenge. It's a story we've talked about several times now. Most recently, Torin taught on it two weeks ago. It's Joshua 3. The Israelites sit on the plains of Moab, just opposite of Jericho. They're on the east side of the Jordan River, and they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River into the land. From a chronology standpoint, this is between the two stories that we've looked at today. That first story takes place. Caleb is 40 years old. Then you have 38 years later, which is this story right here. And then the story we just looked at was seven years after that. It sits between these two stories. It sits between both ends of the giants and the stories of Caleb. And one of the things that, that Torn again, walked us through was this reality that they're all standing on the banks of the Jordan. They're standing on the water's edge. And Torrin showed you this video clip of what the Jordan River looks like at flood stage. And by the way, a ton of water has been taken out of the Jordan River to be sent to other aspects of the land of Israel. This would have been even greater of a raging torrent when the Israelites were getting ready to cross it. And you have Joshua who is leading the Israelites, has brought the entire community up to the side of the Jordan River. And they're standing on the banks of the Jordan. And they're about to have to cross into this. And the one other person that is there by Joshua's side who represents the older generation is none other than Caleb himself. Tell me Caleb isn't itching to get into that water. Tell me he isn't like, listen, 38 years ago, we should have done this thing. And now we've had 38 years to think about how we blew it back then. And now we need to go ahead and take this thing out. We got to cross the Jordan. We need to jump in and tell me he's not just standing there going, let's go, let's go. Come on, come on. We've got mounds to take, giants to slay. We've got some work to do. Let's go, let's go, let's go. The question I have for us in the midst of all this is, what makes Caleb so different than everybody else? What is it about Caleb that when people look at giants and they say, we're grasshoppers to them, Caleb goes, we can do it. What is it about Caleb who when he gets into the land says, give me the tallest mounds, give me the biggest people. Let's go, let's go, just give them to me, let's go. What is it about Caleb that sets him apart? What makes him so different in spirit? What makes him follow God wholeheartedly? What makes Caleb different? Because I don't know about you, but Caleb is in, one, in my opinion, one of the most inspiring characters in the entire biblical text. And I wanna be someone who's on the heels of Caleb. I want to follow in the footsteps of Caleb. But in order to follow in the footsteps of Caleb, we have to answer the question, what makes Caleb different than everybody else? In uh, 2008, there was a fabulous film that came out called Vantage Point. Okay, let me stir some of your memories here. How many of you saw Vantage Point? How many of you remember seeing this story? 
Okay, so some of you got to see this. Uh, Dennis Quaid, you've got Forrest Whitaker, Sigourney Weaver's in this as well. This was one of the coolest films I had ever seen. Not because the plot line was so over the top fantastic. It was, a, it was a good plot line. It was a great plot line. It wasn't the best I've ever seen. It was how they did the film. So how it goes for the uh, uninitiated, for those who didn't see it, and some of you are probably thinking, I will probably now watch it sometime, maybe in the next few months. So I'm not gonna spoil it for you. But here's the idea behind the movie, is that it opens with a scene in a square, and the storyline is around a terrorist attack. But what happens is, is that the storyline plays out in like eight minutes. And then the story basically almost ends, and then the whole movie rewinds really, really, really fast, and then they start the movie over again. But this time, they take it from another vantage point, and it goes for about seven or eight minutes, and then it gets to that same ending spot, but then it's fast forward, it goes backwards real quick again, and then it starts over from another vantage point, and the whole film is that this entire story gets played out from eight different vantage points, And only later on do you get the vantage point that really tells you what happened. Because when it comes to understanding a story like this, the vantage point makes all the difference. So, I'm not leaving. And I gotta make sure that I don't fall into that pit right there. I always wanted a remote control. (laughs) Just never thought it'd be a big piece of construction equipment. (laughs) Caleb is one of these people that when everybody else starts garnering a grasshopper view, for him, he recognizes that that's a poor vantage point. That a vantage point can make all the difference. Hello to you, first row of upper deck. (laughs) Never been able to look into your eyes before. Yes, hello. (laughs) Yep. And uh, yeah, I I told my wife I loved her before I left the front row. (laughs) May not see you again, honey, but... uh, To our upper deck, hello, fabulous, nice to see you eye to eye. For those of you in the front row, I hope I don't see you anytime soon eye to eye, all right? From up here, the vantage point is very different. Because down there, if I'm looking up at that warrior, I've got the viewpoint of a grasshopper. Indeed, that's what the Israelites say. We can't do this. We can't attack those giants because we're like grasshoppers. Our vantage point is that of a grasshopper. But when you elevate your vantage point to God's vantage point, all of a sudden the landscape looks just a little bit different. Now, I did this in the first service and I had several people come over to the first service saying, well, that's really great, but we didn't really see what your vantage point was. Is there any way you could help us see it? I was like, well, sure, I'd love to be able to do that. What a fabulous idea. So let me show you what my vantage point looks like 
from up here. And we'll see if we can get that up here in just a few moments. Ah, there we go. You sit up here and you look down and you go, yeah, that nine foot warrior isn't all that imposing. Becky looks kind of small. In fact, the dude's looking a little bit thin on the backside there. He's not all that big. He's not all that imposing. Those giants are not all that big because your vantage point makes all the difference. You see, what made Caleb different than everybody else is that he refused to look at a challenge from a grasshopper's vantage point. Instead, he elevated his vantage points to God's. And he says, if God has called me to do it, if God has laid the foundation for it, then God's going to be part of this. And I can adopt God's viewpoint and I can forget my puny little grasshopper vantage point. That is what set Caleb apart. I would just say this, if we had to succinctly summarize all of this, is that elevating your vantage point generates the courage to act. It was fear that prevented those 10 from convincing the rest of the community with Joshua and Caleb, we can do it. It was fear that made them step back when they were supposed to step forward. And it's only courage in the midst of something that brings a sense of fear, a sense of trepidation, that will enable us to do what God is asking us to do. Friends, Caleb was 85 years old. He could have said, back when I was 40, I was game for this. But now that I'm 85, yeah, not so much. And yet he said, I am just as strong today. I'm just as vigorous. I am just as animated and energetic and ready to go as I was 45 years ago when Moses sent me out. Let's go, let's do it. Which tells you very something, something very significant about Caleb, doesn't it? The dude doesn't believe in retirement. And why doesn't Caleb believe in retirement? Because God doesn't believe in retirement. Retirement is not a biblical concept. It's a modern invention. Now you can retire from your job, but you do not retire from the kingdom of God. Today, yes, you can clap about that. Because it's one of those things that we need to continue to remind ourselves about. Today we are celebrating Joey. We are celebrating her retirement from Central. But I can tell you with firsthand experience, Joey is not retiring from the kingdom of God. It has been amazing to see the journey that her and Rick have been on since she said, I am retiring about God, what's next? What do you have next for me to do? What do you have next for us to do? Yeah, we might get a couple more rounds of golf in that we normally get in, but there is still work to be done and there's still questions to be asked. And Joey is one of these people who absolutely inspires me because she's looking at what's next, what's next, what's next? God, what do you have for me and I love it last week 
The services got done. Craig did an outstanding job with the teaching. There were a number of people that were coming over and talking to Craig. And I had a couple of people come over and share with me some stories. And it was really, really, really um, a unique Sunday for me from the perspective of I was talking to somebody. We were standing up over here. And it was after this first service. And I was talking to this person. And right behind me, I heard another conversation that was going on. And it was of somebody from our legacy generation talking to somebody else in our legacy generation. And the one person said to the other one, you know this whole stronger challenge that we've been talking about? Person said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what our series is on everything. Person said, yeah. I'm way too old for this. I can't do this. And I was in my conversation and my shoulders just slumped. And then about five minutes later, I had somebody else from our legacy generation come up to me. They said, can I talk to you? I was like, sure. And it was one of these conversations that you won't forget because this person took me to the side because our team was warming up for the second service and trying to get everything set musically. We went in the hallway and we started talking and she just said, I just have to let you know that I'm, I'm, I'm later on in life. There's a lot of things I can't do. But she said, I just have to let you know that everywhere I go, I, I ask God to use me. I just say, God, use me. And she said, I just got to tell you how God chose to use me this last week. And with tears, she told me how God used her. And she said, all I want to do is to be used by God. And I thought, what a tale of two stories. Here we have one person that says, I'm too old for this. And another person who says, all I want God to do is use me. Friends, if you have breath in your lungs, God wants to use you. You don't ever retire from the kingdom of God. And I think some of the most powerful words that we can ever say, and this was inspired from this lady's conversation, is just saying, God, use me. And it was after this conversation that somebody else came up and had a conversation with me. I sometimes get like one of these conversations. Last week, I got like five. And this one person was also talking about how God used them this last week. I don't know what spurred this on, Craig. Somehow God used your words to elicit everybody going, man, let's go, let's go, let's go. And this person said, this is how God used me this last week. And the person ended the conversation by saying, isn't it an amazing honor that the king of the universe would want to use us? And I thought, there's a vantage point for you. God used me. See, friends, we are in the midst of this stronger challenge where we as a church over the last several months have been saying, okay, God, we we think that you have spoken and we are looking to figure out what's next. How, how, How do we go about this stronger challenge? Because the one thing that we have recognized as a church community is that there are some global giants that we need to tackle that there are issues of poverty, there are issues of needs, there are issues of lots of people, both home and away, who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And we, as a church community, we stand on the water's edge. We are invited into this journey ahead that for many of us, we have never walked anything like this before. And the thing that is inspiring and challenging at the same time about Caleb is that Caleb recognized that there were these giants that had to be tackled. There were these things that were gonna require great energy and great sacrifice in order to do. But what Caleb did in that moment when people stood on the banks of the Jordan is in a sense, Caleb had been at challenges like this before. Caleb knew that there were certain things that God was calling him into. His story is from giants to giants and standing at the water's edge, Caleb goes, we can do this. We can tackle what's before us. And we're in the same place as Caleb and the Israelites in that we communally have discerned that God has called us into something significant that is going to require us to face our fears of the giants that we need to tackle in this stronger challenge. But the thing that's compelling about Caleb is not only his personality, which is let's go, let's go, let's go. We can do this, we can do this, we can do this is that Caleb stands on the water's edge, leading a generation that is younger than he is. And it's like Caleb says, I'm gonna lead the way for you. Joshua and I, we're gonna lead the way for you. We know what it's like. We've been in places before where we've been called into something significant and we've been those people that stood up and said, I'm ready, let's go. And now we get our chance and we're gonna take you into the land. We're gonna show you how this goes. As someone who is of a younger generation, going into this stronger challenge, I am grateful for you Caleb's that are sitting in our crowd today because Central was built by Caleb's. People, exactly, exactly. People who took a risk, whether it was moving from 17th and Pine here to all the other things that Central has done in its 120 year history. And most significantly, what has happened in the last 20, 25 years here at Central. You Caleb's have provided us an opportunity to go after another Caleb-like challenge. And we need you to lead the way for the rest of us generations of whom this is very new for. We need you to help us elevate our vantage point because when we stand right here and we look at what is before us, this is intimidating, this is imposing, there is a sense of fear, there is a sense of unknown, but from a communal standpoint, we have all discerned together and affirmed that this is what God is calling us to do. And now in order to be those Caleb's, to follow you, Caleb's, to rise up another generation of Caleb's. And by the way, I was sitting right over here during our baptism going, the kid's name is Caleb. (laughs) We can't plan that, God can. (laughs) God is using Central to raise up Caleb's just like that. To say, let's go. Let's go, God, you got stuff for us to go, but you got stuff for us to do, let's go, let's go, let's go. 
And we don't wanna live with a grasshopper's vantage point. We want God's vantage point. And God's saying, I've called you in this. I'll empower you to do what I need you to do. Just join me in the vantage point and you'll have the courage to do what I'm asking you to do. And that holds true in our stronger challenge and it holds true in anything that's going on individually in our lives. Yes, there's a communal calling here at Central. We also have individual callings. And there are times where God calls us as a family, as an individual to go after something that is really big and really imposing. And God says, even in those moments, don't look at it from a grasshopper's vantage point, elevate it up, get my vantage point, and you'll have the courage to do what I'm asking you to do. That is what we're challenged with this morning, friends. We're all chasing after Caleb. And for those of you who are Caleb's, We need you to set the pace and we'll be on your heels. Let's pray. God, thank you for this character, Caleb. God, thank you that it is Caleb with whom you say, he's got a different spirit and he follows me wholeheartedly. God, may we be Caleb's for you. Elevate our vantage point so that we may see things from your perspective and give us the courage to do whatever you're asking us to do. Holy Spirit, empower us to do this. Jesus, thank you for paving the way. Thank you that you go with us. For it's in Christ's name we say, pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, why don't you stand? Let's close with a word of blessing. We've got, I believe it's popcorn and cookies. Is that right, Joey? We've got popcorn and cookies in the lobby. Uh, If it's not popcorn and cookies, I got bad info, but I'm pretty sure I got good info. Let's celebrate with Joey in the lobby. For those of you who are interested in baptism, there's a baptism meeting right off the lobby. You can find signs out there. We'll also have people up front with orange tags if you would like someone to pray with you. I'll be up front for a bit. Would love to do that if that would be helpful to you. My friends and family, as you leave here today, may you have the courage to do what God is asking you to do. May you elevate your vantage point and may you, like Caleb, be known as someone who's got a different spirit about you because you follow God wholeheartedly. Grace and peace be with all of you. Have a great week. See you next week. Take care.